20,000 feet up, breaking all the lights on the doors. And I ain't seen no ceilings. We came in through the top floor. Three oars rip right round your jugular. You're listening to Feminist Killjoys, PhD, in our feminism, pop culture, and politics as discussed by two professional killjoys. I'm Rachel. And I'm Melody. And today, we are discussing images of violence in the media. From war footage to police shootings, we will discuss our views on this phenomenon through critical race theory, journalism, and critical media studies lenses. But first, Melody, where can our listeners find us on the internet? What up? Uh, You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast application. You can receive extra fkj points by leaving us a review your itunes app now has a review function so feel free to use it on the social media tip you can follow us on instagram twitter and facebook we have a facebook page that you can just like it to follow for episode updates and other things or you can join our closed community page where we have more discussions and that's at feminist killjoys community dash wtf power exclamation point on the fi we have a feminist killjoys phd mixtape And if you have extra dollars and want to support feminist media makers, you can donate to our Patreon. Uh, Asterix here, Patreon took away the percentage of money that they were going to pull from donators. So that whole thing is kind of on hold. So we're back to the original form of Patreon. But of course, we support you if you want to ditch them. We understand, but we're going to stay with them for now. Um, So you can go over there. For those who donate a dollar or more, you get access to our feminist killjoy newsletter called the killjoy review and if you donate five dollars or more a month you get access to our bonus episodes and other content and if uh micro monthly donations aren't your thing you can always go to our website feministkilljoypodcast.com and click on the birdie scroll down and then you can always email us back in 2004 at fkj.phd at gmail.com and thank you for those who emailed me in like june or some like some ridiculous mm-hmm. month that i was like you know what now is a good time to email them back <laughs> you know it's the thought that counts so i kept all those emails unread for a reason and then rachel we got like off the internet so i don't even know how you're going to ask me this but we got like a real phone number we did get a real phone number like from the 90s it's true i feel like that is what happens like all the young kids like are ditching social media and like you know probably going to try to go back to cassette tapes or something but that's how it happens so here we are which you you never left i mean you're pro you're pro analog phone yes all the way through so anyway point being we have a phone number And we want you to call us specifically to talk about your New Year's resolutions because we would like to feature them on a special New Year's episode. So tell tell the listeners, tell the good people where they can call us. You can call us at 414-858-7818. Love it. And so that's for U.S. people. I'm sorry, we don't have an international phone number we should probably yeah. figure that out because we are. We do have international listeners. That's for we sure. do, which is rude for us not to do that. But we right. can figure some. Let us look into that. So, anyways, we're acknowledging it's U.S. only. But yeah, so you can just call. It's not. Does it get forwarded to your phone? Did you do that? No. Okay. So don't worry. Like, 
I mean, if you are a nervous, per- nervous phone caller, as I know some people are, like it doesn't get forwarded to our phone numbers right now. Mm-hmm. To our actual phones, it just goes to a voicemail. So you can just leave yep. it there. Um, it is unlikely, unlikely we will pick up the phone. Uh, right. So leave us a message there. And then otherwise, you can call and like, l- just talk to us if you want. Like a podcast I used to listen to called Oh Yeah Dude, they've had a number for a really long time. And people just call in and like respond to stuff that people talk about. So yeah, anyways, use, use it. Ha- yeah, call us maybe. Mm-hmm. Yay. How are you? What's new? Uh, wait, that's my line. Yeah, you're right. I messed it up. At gmail.com. And how are you, Rachel? <laughs> uh, I'm well enough. It's the the last full week I had here in Boston before traveling to the Midwest for the holidays. Uh, so it's busy and a little bit stressful and Mercury still in retrograde. So as I was sharing with you a little mm. bit earlier, there's like communication problems happening with some people in my life. So that is a thing. But mostly it's been okay. Um Yoga, wrapping up the online class. I was doing boot camp this this week, so waking up early, doing some cool, good workouts at boot camp. Nothing major. I'm going to – there's been lots of holiday parties. I'm going to two parties tonight and a cookie party tomorrow, so doing some vegan cookie baking. Um, and also the Mass Bail Fund of Holiday Fundraiser Party is tomorrow, which will be great. Most, what are you doing for the fundraiser? Like what's the – It's actually – it's at the home of an ACLU lawyer. Okay. And there's a speaker and food. It's not my – I'm not hosting the fundraiser. It's the. It's like the official Mass Bail Fund organization fundraiser. So, What if people want to donate remotely? They can go to massbailfund.org if you would like to donate. Thanks for asking. There's just like a PayPal link or something or – Yes. If you go to okay. the website, there's a donate button. Yeah. Cool. You're in North Dakota right now. Is that oh, okay that I, I tell yeah, you know, your fine. anti-location reveal? Uh, I think I, I'm sure I revealed in social media somewhere that I'm here. Google already knows where I am because, man, that shit's creepy. Anyways, uh, I am in North Dakota. I'm in Grand Forks. The food, Rachel, I had to order an oriental chicken salad with no oh, chicken just to get like a decent salad. Oh, dear. Wait, was it called oriental? Uh, Yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's like no vegan food here. Oh and I know that's such a privileged God. thing to say, but it's just like, I'm being such a city snot. I- I'm just admitting yeah. it. I'm like, where, like, there's no good coffee. There's no yeah. almond milk anywhere. I'm just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> take me back to my liberal city. Right. So I'm just <laughs> having a moment here. But it's fun to see pretty much like people that are considered our family here. One of our family members graduated uh, college. So that was cool. Right. And then, yeah, before that, this week, I saw my friend, my longtime friend, Andy Newman, who now produces a show for PRI, which is a public, it's called Public Radio International. That is so cool. Can you get us jobs, please? No. (laughs) You know what's really, (laughs) I'd be happy to introduce you to him. He's like an amazing person. It was really fun talking to him, though, like nerding out about radio stuff. I was like, just tell me everything about public radio. Like I was just listening to everything because I just think it's such a fascinating industry and Mm -hmm. I would love to be in public radio. But he was saying that a lot of producers are getting snagged up by kind of up and coming podcasts to do work. Interesting. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And he's not mad about it because he's like, well, you're going to get a great experience. Public radio is very uh, stagnant in some ways. Yeah. That was interesting just to see like how podcasts have really kind of interrupted public radio. 
Yeah. Yet a lot of public radio does podcasts, so it, there's a lot of overlap. Right. But he also confirmed that, like, the podcasts that are popular, it has nothing to do with, like, actual quality. It's just, you know, who you know. And Totally. I was kind of, when he was talking, I was, like, trying to listen to the positions and seeing, like, what I could, you know, with our knowledge, like, what would right. be good. But, right. yeah, I'd be happy to, like, actually do, you know, an intro with him because he's really, he's super cool. I yeah. Just, Really laid back and super funny and yeah, would be totally willing to talk about it. But we ended up talking a lot about Garrison Keeler and then there was somebody at WNYC, the host of Takeaway, that got booted for similar behavior. Yeah. Yep. So he really wanted to kind of talk about that kind of stuff. So Yeah. And that's actually a very good transition. We want to do just a brief who's ruining the dinner party segment, which we haven't done in a while because it's just been like so much of what we talk about. But speaking of, so Garrison Keeler, do you want to elaborate? since you're in Minnesota still. Yeah, I was on the Star Tribune website, which is our local newspaper. And so he's been basically like banished from NPR and the Washington Post where he had a column. And Garrison Keillor just emailed them this column about a few thoughts in Limerick from a Mayo Clinic oh, OR. God. <laughs> oh, God. And then, okay, editor's note. So it said, you know, he's been banned from all these places. On Wednesday, Keillor submitted this to the Star Tribune, we thought readers would find it interesting. Ugh. And he's just talking about how he had heart surgery, which, like, I don't fucking care that you just had heart surgery. Okay, what are you supposed to think after reading something like this, right? You're supposed to find some compassion because he had, they're, you know, he's trying to get right. compassion from you because he had heart surgery. Right. That's like, slimy. He will not go away. He is so mad that he yeah. got banished. He is so mad. And he, like, won't give it up. Like, he – I can't – there's probably a celebrity that has done something similar, but he's just – he just keeps crawling back. Yeah. And finding yeah. ways in. And he's like, okay, well, maybe the Star Tribune will publish me. It's just Ugh. like, just go away. Right. Go yep. away. You're gross. Yeah. You've always been gross. Yes. <laughs> you know, he wasn't probably like rolling in the public radio dough, but he's been working long enough These, he's probably fine. Mm, like, he's fine. No, Prairie Home Companion, all his shows sell out. He was doing just fine. He's right. like actually one of the biggest stars and he's right. been doing it since the 70s. So right. he owns a bookstore in St. Paul. Like he's got, he's doing, he's, he's fine. doing fine. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to real quick talk to us about the FCC? as well. Oh, yeah. We talked about this last week in our kind of best worst of news segment, but the FCC voted against net neutrality. So the things that the corporations wanted, they got. And it's actually really frustrating because the FCC does this a lot where the public will come out and overwhelmingly say that they're like against whatever they're about to vote for. This happened many times uh, when George W. Bush was in office and Clinton. The public, if you ever talk to them about any of these issues, they're always against deregulating the media industry, yet the FCC doesn't have to listen to the public at all. And so it was just like really annoying to watch so many people like so of, so many of my students like contact the FCC or the congressional people that represent them and tell them how they felt. And the FCC had nothing to say about that. And there was like, yeah. no, we're good. We're going to go with the corporations here. Yep. The only thing that people have been talking about in terms of hope is that states can start suing the right. FCC and those lawsuits then in the past have overturned some of these rulings. So there is a possibility that things might go back, <laughs> but yeah. you know, it's going to, it's going to take a while. So it's definitely not doomsday. Like you're not going to pay $15 to access Facebook, but you know, things are going to slowly change if this stays in place. So thanks a lot, FCC. I'm so glad that our government really listens to the people. I know. It's good. Yeah. It's a good thing that like, Money doesn't trump 
anything else in no no my dad he was kind of his take on it was like well how about now is just a time that you all just like stop being on the internet all the time if you don't like what's happening then just go i would be so down with that but we still have to have equitable access because of resources not because we all want to watch tv Right. No, exactly. My, I mean, my mom's online every day trying to apply for jobs, like, and, and trying to get social service benefits for, like, all the, all yep. the stuff, you know. Yeah, like, my mom had to teach herself how to do all that stuff, yeah. too. Like, she yeah. didn't even have an option. It's not, it's not about, like, it's kind of frustrating to me that the conversation has been like, oh, in, you're going to have to pay for Instagram, Netflix is going to be slower. It's like, okay, but that's not, like, the crux of the issue here. No, it never has been. No. For activists. They've always right. been, it's about getting information equitably right. to people. Right, exactly. Oh, well, let's cross our fingers that maybe Congress can do something. I I don't know. I don't know. That's definitely ruining my holiday parties. Moving on to our topic of the day. I'm just going to do that. Sorry, like a dinner for like Christmas. I'll be like, how about that FCC, FCC. huh, guys? (laughs) That'll be the official like Debbie Downer. Um, Remember, we watched that Debbie Downer skit from SNL in that gender class when we first learned about the feminist killjoy. Do you remember that? I don't at all, actually. Oh, really? Oh, do you know, do you remember Debbie Downer, the character? No. You got to look it up because that's exactly what she did. She sat at a dinner table and would say depressing things. (laughs) Oh, so it's a Um, sketch about me. I'll share that with my family. They'll be like, finally. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So (laughs) speaking of really lighthearted subjects... Our topic of the day. This came to mind for a couple of reasons. This had happened a while ago, the Dan- the Daniel Shaver shooting, mm. which is the man who was executed in cold blood in a hotel begging for his life without any weapon at all. His hands were in the air and a cop just murdered him. And we have video of it. And the cop got acquitted because none of this matters. I actually was confused. I thought Daniel Shaver was a black man because, of course, I mean, that's just what is disproportionately the, the the case in these situations. He's actually a white man. So that's just a side note. But when I saw the release of that video um, that was recirculating because of this acquittal, I was again, as usual. And again, I didn't I didn't watch the video. And I like skipped past the pictures because it's because I don't like to watch them. And we're going to unpack that a lot today. But I was instantly reminded of this Sadia Hartman quote, who is somebody who comes to my mind a lot when when these images of dead usually black men, are circulating. This is Sadia Hartman, historian, African-American studies scholar from her book, Scenes of Subjection. She says, rather than inciting indignation too often, these images of black suffering amure us to pain by virtue of their familiarity. What interests me are the ways in which we are called upon to participate in such scenes. Are we witnesses who confirm the truth of what happened in the face of world-destroying capacities of pain, the distortions of torture, the sheer unrepresentability of terror and the repression of dominant accounts? Or are we voyeurs fascinated with and repelled by exhibitions of terror and sufferance? What does the exposure of the violated body yield? Proof of black sentience or the inhumanity of the peculiar institution? Or does the pain of the other merely provide us an opportunity for self-reflection? At issue here is the precariousness of empathy and the uncertain line between witness and spectator. Only more obscene than the brutality unleashed at the whipping post is the demand that this suffering be materialized as evidenced by the display of the tortured body on endless recitations of the ghastly and the terrible. In light of this, how does one give expression to these outrages without exacerbating the indifference to suffering that is the consequence of the benumbing spectacle 
or contend with the narcissistic identification that obliterates the other or the purience that is too often the response to such displays. Sadia Hartman, out. All of the questions she's unpacking there, and she's writing um, specifically about doing archival research about slaves and and bearing witness to these horror, like horrible violences mm-hmm. that she's reading about. And what does it mean for her as a historian to like recount those? What does it mean to like give life again to that to that violence? You know, to what make white grad students believe that it was terrible? Like, so I think her questions mm-hmm. are, what do these images of violence get us? And I think about that every time I see one of those videos, because mm-hmm. I think the argument is we need to bear witness to this because it's so horrible. And we need to be reminded of how bad it is. But then on the other hand, what is it? Is it exploitative? I think is what these questions come down to. And we can kind of go into other questions, too. But what were your thoughts when when you read that or when you see those videos in general? The two biggest things that I think about is part of that quote about I really think that the questioning, are you a witness? Are you a spectator is really important because the way that these videos are being broadcast there's no framing around it because it's in social media. I mean, sometimes there's some framing of it, like watch this atrocious video, but it's just a video. It's not packaged in a news Mm -hmm. segment or in a book. We don't have a lot of control over who's watching it and why they're watching it. Mm -hmm. And then connected to that is who the audience is in terms of answering these questions. I'd have a different answer if we were talking about people from the same exact culture or community that, that are being killed that are then watching their own people being killed versus people outside of the culture that understand what's going on. And watching another video is really, like you said, just kind of paying homage or tribute to what happened. Like there's been a lot of people asking, like, you just have to watch this. You owe it to this person to watch what happened to them. And then there's also this segment of, and this is very specific about white people now, since we're talking about race stuff in America that, you know, I think a lot of these videos might be the most desired audience is these white people that might actually wake up if they see this one video. It's like, okay, well, maybe this one will get them or maybe this one will get them. And so in this case, it's like, well, why don't, this is pretty atrocious the situation. And on top of it, he's white. So all your arguments about, well, he's black, so he probably was up to no good doesn't work. So I think the idea is maybe to get people to flip their script on how they feel about this, about this violence. But I don't know if it actually does that. Yeah, I mean, this was like a a key tactic in the civil rights movement, MLK specifically, and and other leaders, I shouldn't just narrow it to him, there were so many leaders in that movement, they strategically practice civil disobedience and nonviolent resistance, so that they could look sympathetic when Mm -hmm. dogs attacked them when they were getting hosed down, and they were literally doing nothing. And then this was broadcast on television, and people were like, holy fuck, this is not okay what's happening to them. And so that actually was very impactful in civil rights that actually did create sympathy in, in white America, largely. What I am wondering about what is different is the medium of television versus social media. And are we being so inundated? Like we are so trained. Our brains now are able to compartmentalize scrolling through a Facebook feed and seeing like a cute animal video, a live shooting of a black man, a hurricane that killed thousands of people, another cute animal video, somebody's lunch, your friend's marriage announcement, like we are so trained to cope with that diverse range of human emotion that I wonder if that is part of the problem as well, because I don't know that it's impacting people the same way that the images of the protesters during the civil rights movement impacted white audiences. Just to back up a second, I know I said I don't think in general that it's doing much good in terms of people flipping their script, but 
this is after years of this kind of news coverage where people get desensitized, like you were saying, especially on social media. But I do think early on with Trayvon Martin, Eric Gardner, mm-hmm. uh, Michael Brown, that white people did wake up when they saw this kind of violence on video. I do think the early videos really did help. And also because it was through social media, again, it was unmediated. And so people could just see the full video. There was no editing. It's easy for people to ignore a news report. It's like, oh, it's CNN, it's biased or whatever kind of you know, ways that they feel about the news. And again, the news packages it in a certain way. And then it's a little bit more compelling than your Facebook friend like ranting on Facebook about police brutality, because you can just just dismiss them as being emotional. But when you see the video, there's not much more. (laughs) It's like, well, how can you not see the injustice? Mm -hmm. So I think early on, that is true. But now that it's become part of a news cycle that has died down. And so now we're, you know, the current news cycle, I would say is really focusing on sexual assault accusations. Now, I think people have been desensitized. It's like, it's just another killing now. It's just Mm -hmm. another example of police violence. And even in these last two years, I think we've gotten more and more compartmentalized into our social media channels and our specific social media channels, because our social media looks very different person by person. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, I'm saying all of this stuff specifically for white people. Like, I just don't I can't see the benefit of any of these videos for people of color that go through this stuff. Yeah. Like, that's just got to be traumatic. Like, I just don't, there is no point in having this stuff broadcast over and over and over again for people of color. I think it's primarily a tool for white people. There's been studies at this point where there, uh, it has been proven that it is, it is creating trauma and re-traumatizing people of color to see these images of people who look like them repeatedly being murdered. There was a study by the Center for Mental Health Disparities that talked about how these graphic videos combined with lived experiences of racism can create severe psychological problems reminiscent of post-traumatic stress syndrome. There was a quote, a black woman who said that it is a dehumanization of black people and we don't see that with any other race. It's ingrained in us from our history. White people used to have picnics at hangings and at lynchings, bringing Mm -hmm. their children to watch black bodies suffer and die. We are not far removed from that. It's just being played out through technology now, and it hurts. I think that was a really powerful point. This is a very age-old Media Studies 101 sort of example, but why, why is breasts, like women's breasts, can't be on Facebook, but Facebook will allow the murder of a black man in a video? And that's mm-hmm. no problem. And so what does it mean that we we think that this is acceptable to watch? And, you know, you can take or leave the sex versus violence question, but that's just sort of an example of what Facebook bans and doesn't ban. And I think this idea, what this what this woman is is saying is that because black people are not considered human or what Judith Butler would talk about, people who have livable lives because they are also grievable, they are worthy of grief, is that part of it is because we, as historically, as a nation, had to become comfortable with the banality of Black suffering and Black death, because that's how our com- that's how our country was built. And when we, I started thinking about this topic for this week, too, I my mind went I, right away to the to lynchings about how in mm-hmm. the history of our country is that white people watch, watch Black people die as mm-hmm. a form of entertainment. And mm-hmm. it also reminded me of this time in which I was in Miami for a conference. So I was like out of my element. I was at a restaurant and they had big giant jumbo screens 
TVs. And I looked up and it was right when Walter Scott died. And mm-hmm. so they kept playing the video over and over and over <sighs> again. Like it was like a replay of a, a touchdown or something. And it's, I think part of the problem is the cable news, the like the way yeah. that they package these things. And so that's different than what's on social media because you can control whether you click on and, and watch it. Like you chose not to watch that video, but you don't have a choice <laughs> when it's on cable, like in public. And I was torn there because it's like, yes, of course, like I will watch this. Like I get it. This is her horrific. I will speak out against it. I can't process this at a restaurant. I don't know why this is being projected on a jumbo screen or like, you know, you're watching cable news at home. It just gets circulated over and over and over again. I just see that then as like sensationalism. I was trying to explain that to my brother because he was getting really annoyed with I can't even remember who had been killed at this point, but he was sick of seeing it. Well, you know what? Some people, this is their lives. So too bad, so sad. I don't care that you're sick of it. Watch it. But it's also not good if cable news continues to repeat this kind of stuff. And the reaction is, I'm sick of seeing the same story over and over. That's not helpful either. Yeah. So I think cable news really has to own some of the sensationalism in the way that they package stuff. That's a slightly different conversation than like how the stuff gets circulated through social media. But back to that, the trauma thing, too. There's a professor at Morgan State, which is a historically black college. And he studies historical trauma, too. How not even seen recent trauma, but that like historical trauma that has been passed along from generation to generation sets up people for health disparities that they already don't feel well to begin with. And then of course, the police brutality stories make it even worse. And so he's he lives or Morgan State is near Baltimore. So he focuses on that city. And obviously, they've had a lot of trauma recently for for having Freddie Gray there. So that so you only so you already have historical trauma in that black community. And then on top of it, you add police brutality to that. So he did a study with some students at Morgan State. And him as as well as other people have found that communities that have historical trauma have health disparities, have poorer health. And that's not talking about, well, they're in a food desert or, you know, there's no gyms nearby. It's just their bodies themselves are set up poorly to begin with because of all the historical trauma. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to how the body and mind are connected. So if you have bad mental health, you're often unhealthy. Mm -hmm. And I know I've spoken with some people of color, African American specifically, who had to admit to themselves that they were having anxiety attacks and their hearts were going to go, like, (sighs) we're going to fail because they like couldn't handle all of this news and trying to process it given the tra- the trauma that they've had with their ancestors for centuries completely you know, this is it's so this is i think the mediated images that we see then we have to understand and that's why i started talking about audiences it's going to impact audiences differently and in this case it's going to physically harm people yeah completely i also want to i want to circle back to what you were talking about with your brother there was actually another study at wake forest university that studied millennials and their the effect that that killings have on black millennials specifically. And respondents actually said that when they learn of another death or hashtag, they mentioned a feeling of numbness that produces anger. And their anger comes from the fact that they're in the position to feel numb. And that goes along with the anger from the fact that it happened again. So there's this weird sort of juxtaposition of anger and trauma and devastation with I don't feel anything because this is normal and because I'm actually here and alive and I kind of don't know how to process that. And people want to avoid that feeling. So they don't want to watch those videos, Black millennials included, which which is what you're saying, like, obviously, like, what would be the point there? But I think even for 
white folks who feel like that, who might feel like that, it is this idea of like compassion fatigue, which we hear people talk about when, you know, particularly there was those couple months when it was multiple police shootings, earthquakes and fires, then the hurricane started, Mm -hmm. then there were deeper, I mean, and the same thing with Trump's like first month in office, like, it was just one thing after another after another. And we talked about on the show, I definitely checked out of the news, you know, and to this day, my NPR consumption is much more limited, because I'd rather listen to podcasts about astrology than the news. So so anyway, I just think that this this idea of compassion fatigue relates to what you were talking about with your brother and that it's normal and it doesn't mean he's a bad person. It's just how do our brains and our hearts cope with all this? To back up, though, to go back into history, on the one hand, we're saying we shouldn't watch these things because maybe they don't have any impact. On the other hand, we're saying like, actually, they're tra- they could be traumatizing. They can be numbing. So actually, they're having a ton of impact. So is that actually mean that they're still kind of a tool but not if they're not producing any action. But I want to go back to taking it out of the social media context. Again, we talked about civil rights, but there's also this debate happened around uh, images of war during Vietnam, which was one of the first wars when television was more accessible to sort of everybody. You you have more in-depth journalist history background than I do. So do you want to expand on that? Yeah. So what Rachel just said is... Totally true. So this is when TVs were starting to be mass produced and people were able to afford them. And so more people had access to TV. And then there's an interesting history of like how journalism kind of shifted during the Vietnam War. But we got to the point where journalists were on the ground there just covering what they were seeing instead of having this government propaganda angle that we definitely saw in the Iraq War. And so this was the first time in America that people could see images of war like moving images. So they would see, um, you know, there's some very famous examples. There's a photo, at least, of a young girl running away from her village with it engulfed in smoke, and then there's troops behind her. There was a lot of images of huts being burned that we were burning. Americans got to see what we were doing overseas. So if you haven't been in the military, you don't get to see that kind of stuff. And of course, we were dealing with veterans coming back from World War II. But the American public in general had not seen, been witness to this kind of stuff. And the country were was already against the war, but like extremely against the war once they saw these images. Like it just shut down. They were just like, absolutely not. We're not going to be supporting this. And so after that happened, the government started to get more involved with journalists and how they were covering wars. And so if you were around at this time or, or have done history work, you know, during the Gulf War in the 90s, like there wasn't that much visual coverage of it. And there's still some like regulations, like the journalists aren't allowed to take pictures of coffins uh, with draped in flags Mm -hmm. coming back to the United States. They're banned from doing, I don't want to say banned because there's the First Amendment, you know, freedom of the press, but they're highly encouraged not to do particular things because it interrupts the propaganda to get us to be supportive of the war. You know, you can't Mm -hmm. have your country turn against you during a time of war. And then what they started doing, the government, is they started encouraging embedded reporters. So, you know, the military can close off access. It's like, well, you can't just go to Iraq, like, good luck staying safe there during Mm -hmm. during a war. And so during the Iraq war, we saw embedded reporters. So we were seeing images of war, but we were seeing like the military gearing up 
and we're seeing bombings from far away and mm-hmm. we weren't really seeing on the ground brutality that the troops were imposing on these. Right. Yeah. But then again, you know, with social media, things are changing and then there's alternative journalism that were there covering mm-hmm. things from a different angle. But in general, because the Vietnam War images were so powerful in terms of public opinion, this is why we have some pretty strict suggestions, um, and some of it is regulated from journalists covering war. So therefore, like from a media effect standpoint, they would argue then then seeing that seeing brutality, seeing violence will actually impact people and get people to change their opinions on specific things. With that said, I mean, we see so much violence now on TV, through films, through video games, in real life, and on social media that this desensitization thing, I think, might be having more of an effect than it did in the 60s um, Mm -hmm. because just things were different. The media was different. Another question is, regardless of how this impacts people seeing these kind of violent images on TV or on social media, an important thing to keep in mind is even if we decide that it's not helpful, the answer can't be to ask people not to put it up because that creates a like a slippery slope towards censorship. The government tried to censor journalists. And so we would be upset if if we didn't get the real images. You know, we already don't get the real images from like right. Palestine, right? They they stopped for a variety of different reasons. So I don't think then if we're going to cycle into like, well maybe this isn't the best thing for us to be right. seeing. Censorship yeah. is not the answer because if it was any other situation in which, you know, war is right. probably the best, we would be upset if it was getting censored. So, right. Yeah. I mean, that's real. But it also goes to, I mean, what you're saying, like there, there is still framing in the, in the, the news media. A million people talk about how the news media is so like left. And I mean, they use the word liberal, which is which is appropriate. But they're a corporation that are motivated by profits. So they are not there is agenda setting that's happening, which we we talk about. So they're they're choosing what we see. They're choosing how often we see it. And this is also related. There was a really good essay. I'm just going to read the title because it's right up my alley. Marxist materialism and critical race theory, a comparative analysis of media and cultural influence of the formation of stereotypes and proliferation of police brutality against black men. This is by Jeffries and Jeffries. And one of their points in that essay was this idea that we can see and they're bringing it all the way back to Rodney King, that we we can see some kind of outrage potentially at, at the expression of these when we see these videos of, of violence. But then the news may choose to focus on the protests in response to the violence more than the actual shooting itself, par- partly because the shooting is one event, but then the protests become all over, you know, multiple cities. There's more footage mm-hmm. to show. There's more things that could happen. I'm, I'm wondering your thoughts on that. Do you think that that is a tool to distract from the harm of that is happening against these murders is is when the news is like, Oh, and also, by the way, these these violent protesters, I mean, look at this isn't right either. And it's enraging to me to have it framed that way. But I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. The media coverage of the protests alone, we could have a whole hour discussion on, especially our public memory of the civil rights movement and how we Mm -hmm. look back at that and be like, that was so cool that they Mm -hmm. sat at those lunch counters, right? But then Mm -hmm. at the same time, they'll be like, but this freeway thing, mm, I don't know about that. You know, it's like, it's the same exact tactic, but okay. Um, So there's a lot to unpack there. I hear a lot of people say this, like there was more of this coverage than that coverage. Like I I would like to see numbers, which I rarely say, but I'm wondering if there's like a perception thing going on. Um, And I haven't seen any like content analysis of this. I don't know if it's actually true that there's more coverage of 
the protests than the killings. In certain cities like Baltimore, I bet you for sure that there was way more coverage of the uprising. In Minneapolis, I'm just thinking about Justine and Philando. We had a lot of coverage about the jury situation, the, you know, Mike Freeman, who's supposed to making these decisions. I'm not 100% on that. So whenever people say things like that, I'm like, I would really like somebody to do a content analysis. And for those yeah. of you, like you, you literally count how many news stories. Well, I think what's interesting is they would only part part of the occupation of the fourth precinct. Fourth precinct was it? Yeah, was that the only time there was what the news considers a newsworthy event in that is when the white supremacists yeah, came with true. a gun. Yeah. So if the protesters aren't doing things that are quote unquote violent or going to get attention, then right. They, you're right; they're not going to be covered. They don't. They there isn't going to be a documentation of this important daily, whether it's boring to the news or mm-hmm. what would actually make a. Re- really lovely, you know, sort of human interest story about like the community building that happens in those occupations and things that you've written about, but they don't want to cover that because it's not. So we see I'm talking about the times when things are set on fire, when windows are broken, when the news is like, see, and people in general are like, see, they're bad too, which is garbage, obviously. Yeah, I mean, that would be an interesting public opinion research project too. I feel and again, I'm just like kind of using my students as a litmus test here because... They just come from different background than me. So they, they don't have the same kind of social media behind them. But I feel like they will say they'll be critical of the protesters more so than they will the person who got killed. They're like, yeah, police brutality is awful. I think the public opinion has really shifted in that way. Yeah. They're not, they're not down with the protesters though. Right. They're they're still really conflicted on the tactics. Yep. And I think that is due to the media coverage. So I guess, you know, to circle back to your original question, Yeah, the news media is totally to blame for the way that they framed these protests because there's a lot – like you said, that human interest angle would be amazing. Digging into why there's so much anger, historical trauma, let's look at that because that's what I saw and that's what I try to see – you know, show to my students. I'm like, if there's this much outpouring of anger, think about that, where Mm -hmm. that's coming from. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the news media won't do that. But at the same time, they're so I mean, they weren't this is maybe a generalization, but the news coverage was not awful with the police brutality situations, especially the local. Right. Ones. Like, yes, there were some, especially cable news that would try to frame these people as like problematic, like Jamar Clark was a thug and, mm. you know, Eric Gardner was doing things illegally. But then they're like, they're realizing that it's like, well, Philando Castile, he was a cafeteria worker. What do right. you got on? What do you? Oh, he smokes weed. Right. Right. Like, so does everybody else. (laughs) Right. Right. They couldn't even do character assassination at that point. It would be really fascinating to see in like five years, the media effect. Yeah. I think we're too deep in it right now to see. Yeah, I definitely think media coverage has a lot to do with our understanding of protesting. Definitely. Makes me mad. So to circle back on images of violence, any final theories or ideas that help you make sense of it with our tools as media scholars and critical race theory? Yeah. So I was thinking about media effects. Rachel and I are not media effects scholars. We're cultural studies people. So media effects will have like the hypodermic needle theory where like you watch a violent TV show and then you become instantly a violent person, you know, so that's where it kind of started. But I was just thinking through like what kind of media effect theory we could apply to this. 
Mm-hmm. And I just don't, it, this is kind of like a unique situation because I was thinking one of the f- popular ones is the cultivation effect where if you mm-hmm. watch a lot of TV, you start thinking that the world is that way. So like, mm-hmm. my students think Minneapolis is dangerous. Right. Because Have that's you ever visited the there? Right. No. <laughs> right. You watch a lot of SVU and local news though. So of course, yeah, Minneapolis right. is super dangerous. But then I'm thinking watching a lot of police shoot black people doesn't necessarily make people think that police are more violent. I think what it did is like it solidified people's viewpoints. There were some people that already knew that police were brutal. And mm-hmm. and so it just solidified that. And then the people who are very supportive of police were like, well, they're just getting drugged through the mud in the media. You know, those are just like bad apples. Mm-hmm. Like I don't mm-hmm. see a lot of people coming out of this media coverage, even social media stuff, thinking that the world is any different. I think it's just reinforcing what people already knew. Black people are like, yep, Yep, already knew that, you know, and allies are like, yeah, we already knew that. Maybe some of us were like, ooh, didn't know it was that bad. But so I just don't see like, because media effects is all about how it changes our behavior or our perceptions of the world. I think you're probably right. I think it's more of an affirmation of already held beliefs. But I'm thinking about the impact, whether it's in actual articles or seeing some of friends of mine that are both black and parents talk about like having to raise black boys in this climate I think that that probably plants a seed even, I mean, I think that young black men and black boys in disenfranchised neighborhoods that are targeted by police disproportionately, I think they know that real early on. I think middle and upper class black folks probably know that soonish, but maybe not as early as like poor black folks. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering when children, regardless of their class status or anything else, or whether or not their community is more heavily targeted by police, etc. I can only imagine. And again, I, I know that there has been have been studies about this, about the fear that it is going to be more rare to have people trust the police, which is something But because I think what I think the issue about police brutality is that Many of us have to unlearn, especially white folks, have to mm-hmm. unlearn this idea that the police, we learn that the police are who we go to to protect us, to keep us safe. And then we have to unlearn that when we realize that that's actually not true. I actually think that maybe across the board, that message isn't going to be what we're spoon fed in this culture. I think it feel, would feel impossible for it to yeah, be the, the, the main ideological message that that we teach people. And that's going to vary across communities and geography. But to me, it just feels like there actually has been enough of a shift that this concept of the police equals safety isn't holding. No, that's a really good point, especially with people who haven't experienced police brutality before. Mm -hmm. Hearing these stories, having people then share their experiences, water cooler moments, um, Mm -hmm. which has definitely happened in my world where people are like, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, that's happened to me. And then you get the story. Right. So many people are being bombarded with with this that it's like you can't argue that it's anything but true. And I think it also allows for more discussion. Like it's not so radical for us to be like, who doesn't trust the police here? And most people raise their hands. Right. Right. And I guess that, you know, that sucks for the police. But, you know, you could have done things a little differently. But yeah, I think you're you're right that it, it really did change public opinion in that way. I know my brothers and even myself, I had to untrain like, I can't, I just don't call the police anymore, even right. if I want to, or like, I feel like that person's in danger. I just have to start thinking about, I'm like, I got to come up with a different solution because right. it's not going right. to be the police. Uh, but that is definitely something I've learned in the last couple of years. So yeah. you're right. I think it, we just start no. talking and then things unravel. So Look at how open we are to 
thinking through ideas and Mm -hmm. love it. Okay. Well, yeah, that's a heavy topic. Normally I would want December to be more lighthearted in general, but it felt like a good thing to unpack our listeners. Like when we sort of bring in some of the stuff we have the privilege of learning in grad school. So hopefully that was interesting to think through, through these lenses, some of these writers that we mentioned. I didn't get a chance to to quote this person, but it's actually a good transition into RWL. So I'll just really briefly cool. mention Elias Ortega Aponte has a really interesting theory about this idea of neo-lynchings, which echoes what we what we discussed, that these, these videos are the sort of new form of lynching. And he's also making an argument that he, he, he's very much coming from a, a scholarship of embodiment. So he's thinking about the lack of being able to touch or be in physical presence of this, which is different yeah, than a lynching. Yeah, I really like, can you say yeah. a little bit more? That was really fascinating. He says, I take neo-lynching spectacles to be comprised of two aspects. One, those captured moments in which as spectators, we are given a first row seat at the last breath of a person of color dying at the hands of white supremacy. And two, more than just witnessing, one also faces the possibility of entering into social media debates with known ones and strangers in which attributions are made, events are reframed, and the visual contested while deferring and even ignoring the incarnate suffering of the victims and the victims' loved ones. My contention and growing suspicion is that the mediation of violence against black and brown bodies in which the viewers are unable to touch and be touched correlates to a decline of empathy and therefore the dying of black and brown and queer lives becomes simultaneously a spectacle for consumption and the reality debated often bifurcated from the tragic. But this is not the end. Such neo-lynching spectacles are also real death-dealing acts. And as a result, in the face of such acts, justice-seeking ghosts become incarnated. And he goes on. But he's he's very into this idea of, of touching and being touched by something and the way that technology doesn't enable that. Unless there's anything else you want to say, that, that will be a good transition because this is what I've been reading this week. What have you been reading, watching, and listening to? <laughs> Elias Ortega Ponte, actually. Um, oh. The quote that I just read from, it's from a symposium about the book Poetics of the Flesh, which is a book by Mayra Rivera. And it's a really lovely symposium in, in written form of this dialogue about scholars responding to Rivera's work, this book, Poetics of the Flesh. And it's really, really interesting to me. It's it, she, she brings in sort of spirituality with questions of materialism and all of these, all of these things she's, she's putting in conversation, these sort of philosophies that don't always merge well together. And from this book, they were able to have this conversation about something very similar to what we talked about. And it was really really serendipitous. My friend Vince Brown, who I've mentioned on the show before, just sent it to me. He thought I'd be interested in it. And I never opened it. And then I was prepping for the show. And I had no idea that it was going to be related. And then I randomly opened it just because I was like, oh, I never read that email that Vince sent. And I opened it up and I was like, oh, my God, this is like directly related to what we were talking about. So that was like a weird serendipitous moment. But it's a really cool thing. I'll link it in our newsletter. Check it out. You can get it online for free. So that's what I'm reading, along with some other stuff related to the show. And guess what's back, Melody? (sighs) (laughs) Perfect reaction. The Bachelor is back. It's probably going to be boring AF. It's a fucking white dude. He was on the show before. I I hadn't, you know, I've uh, for those of you who haven't been following along to our Bachelor um, journeys. I've only been watching the last couple years, so I don't know who this person is, but he's been on the show before. And, you know, it's mostly white women who are the suitors, the pursuers. So it's probably going to be boring. I'm probably going to watch it anyway because it's really good brain candy for my brain. And also still I find it interesting to think about gender and race when it comes up and whiteness being performed, whether or not there are people of color around or not. So that's back on. So I did watch the first episode. And I'm listening to really good jams, specifically 
Hop Along and Japanese Breakfast and Lady Lamb were some on heavy rotation on my Spotify this week. What about you? Bum-ba-da-num! I also wanted to give a shout out to Dr. Lawrence Brown because I mentioned his article or his study, but then I didn't name it. And I just wanted to say that it is called Healing the Black Butterfly from Contemporary and Historical Trauma. And the black butterfly is in um, reference to in Baltimore, like where the black people live on the map, it ends up looking like a butterfly. Mm, okay. So, Interesting, yeah. And I'll make sure that I send Rachel a link so it ends up in the newsletter somewhere. So I'm reading that, but I'm also reading my students' zines and blogs. So it's their final projects are coming in and they're writing all these cool things about the media. My favorite that I've read thus far is this amazing zine about how social media impacted the 2017 Women's March mm-hmm. and comparing it to the March on Washington and how things were, you know, obviously different back then and how crowds were produced through social media. So it was it's rad. Like I'm going to see if actually a few bookstores will ca- carry it that um, carry zines. So I want to do that. And then there was another zine that I'm going to see if well, somebody will distro, which is about sex work uh, cool. and how sex work. So this was not in my media class, it was in my intercultural class. But the author of this scene was arguing that sex work is a, a worthy industry, an industry in which like women actually make a shit ton of money in a very short amount of time, and that it shouldn't be demonized. And so they were just kind yep. of digging through that argument. So always cool. a fan of that. I'm watching I watched the Jay Z interview, I said I wanted to, yep. and then I watched it. I like took care of myself, had some coffee, 30 minutes, cool. watched the interview. It is so good. Everybody like you got to watch it. It is oh, good. so good. Definitely like trying to get you to buy the album, not because he's pitching it, but just because like, you're like, oh, Jay-Z's on my mind. He's talking about his new album. Yeah. So I get that. But also like they just have a really awesome conversation because the cool. interviewer is an older black guy. And so they have these these great intergenerational conversations. Rad. So do it up. And then I was listening to Flex Your Heart this week. I usually listen to Adult Crash, but I was listening to Flex Your Heart because Lacey's doing this new thing called Rise and Revolts, right? Exclamation Res- point. Resist and Resist revolt. and revolts. Yeah. Do, do a lot of things that are <laughs> powerful. But she had this episode where she had all of her facilitators on and they were talking about diet, not diet, diet, the foods you eat, like intuitive yep. eating, which is Lacey's thing. And they had, she had an astrologer on and a diet, not a dietitian, like a nutritionalist, mm-hmm. herbalist, like all these hippie woo woo people. That was awesome. It was really cool to listen to some of the advice that they were giving, but also I'm really digging this approach to health and wellness from this. I don't know what you call it, like multifaceted approach. So like Holist- astrology is a holistic, holistic. Oh, okay. I, I just so. meant like it's not just food. It's also right. your sign and the moon and the. And the fermented food and the... It's really cool as a program. So she's doing a program. Can you explain this? I'm really excited about this. As Melody said, all the people that she just listed, the astrologer, the herbalist, the intuitive eating coach, et cetera, et cetera, tarot and beyond. Yes. All of these experts in these different areas are basically creating an online self-care program and there'll be group discussions and you'll get tons of information about all of these different things. You'll get ideas for how to implement these things. It's going to be really amazing. They're giving you so much stuff for not very much in the grand scheme of things. And it starts January 1st. So it's a really good way to start the year. We will link it. Hey, before you tell people where to find it, do you have is it one of those things where you have to go along with it? Or can you kind of like take your own time with it? I think you can take your own time. Also, 
I feel really bad. We've been saying resist and revolt. It's reclaim and revolt. No, I think you can do it at your own pace because it'll all come to your to your email. You'll get physical, astrological, digestive, inspirational. You'll get all of these different facets from these experts. And it's going to be really, really cool. And what's the coolest about, I mean, this isn't actually the coolest, but what's exciting <laughs> is that our listeners get a discount because we are lucky enough to be IRL friends with the Lacey Davis. And so Lacey kindly offered FKJ PhD listeners a 10% discount. So if you go to uh, the Reclaim and Revolt uh, page, which is through Eventbrite, and we will definitely link it. Uh, you can sign up and then in the uh, promotional code section, type in all capital letters FKJPHD and you will get 10% off. I would just like to tell listeners that that felt smarmy that like I said that I was listening to that episode and then Rachel like launched into this like <laughs> commercial for it. I literally was listening to that thing. And then I realized I was like, oh, yeah, and I think FKJ people get a thing. I wasn't really doing a thing where I was pretending that I was listening to it. Like that is actually <laughs> what I listened to. Like, I, wasn't, I don't want to be like, Rachel, have you ever tried that chapstick <laughs> called Luscious Lips? No, now, I haven't. Lady, you know. Do you ever get tired of cooking? Because Blue Apron... <laughs> is uh, a really uh, cool thing. And like yesterday, Mm -hmm. I made the most delicious chicken parmesan. Oh, I mean, we're vegans. I mean... Yeah, um, like I actually like forget to eat. So that would be perfect for me. (laughs) Well, what about when you go to sleep? How do you sleep? Because I have a Casper mattress. Oh my God. Also, how do you send your emails? MailChimp. (sighs) Okay, I'm done. Send an Uh, email. (laughs) I didn't. Melody is not the type to try to to try to do anything smarmy like that. But I was. This is actually a perfect segue. So I'm going to let y'all know you're getting your 10. percent So I hope people sign up. I think it's going to be really, really, really cool, and it's going to be an awesome way to start 2018. So I hope people get on that. And WTF power. Goodbye. Bye. I don't want to risk our paths crossing someday. So you walk that way, I'll walk this way And the future hangs over our heads And it moves with each current event Until it falls all around like a cold steady rain Just stay in when it's looking this way And the moon's laying low in the sky Forcing everything metal to shine And the sidewalk holds diamonds like a jewelry store case They argue, walk this way, no, walk this way And Laura's asleep in my bed As I'm leaving, she wakes up and says I dreamed you were carried away on the crest of a wave Baby, don't go away, come here And there's kids playing guns in the street And one's pointing his tree branch at me And so I put my hands up, I say enough is enough If you walk away, I'll walk away he shot me dead I found a liquid cure From my landlocked blues It will pass away 
like a slow parade It's leaving, but I don't know how soon Got me dizzy again You think after 22 years I'd be used to the spin And it only feels worse when I stay in one place So I'm always pacing around or walking away And I keep drinking ink from my pen and I'm balancing history books up on my head But it all boils down to one quotable phrase If you love something, give it away A good woman will pick you apart A box full of suggestions for your possible heart But you may be offended you may be afraid, but don't walk away, don't walk away. We made love on the living room floor. With the noise in the background from a televised war. And in that deafening pleasure, I thought I heard someone say, If we walk away, they'll walk away. Greed is a bottomless pit And our freedom's a joke We're just taking a piss And the whole world must watch The sad comic display If you're still free, start running away Cause we're coming for you So I'm making a deal with the devils of fame Saying let me walk away, please You'll be free, child, once you have died From the shackles of language and measurable time And then we can trade places, play musical graves Till then walk away, walk away, walk away, walk away Putting on my shoes